Hello, this is Russell Brand on Under the Skin from Luminary, a podcast on a subscription model, which, let's face it, has now been revealed to be the future. This week, I'll be talking to James McCleary. James is a deeply experienced wisdom holder, expert facilitator and member of the Elder Council of the Inside Circle Foundation. Inside Circle focuses on reducing prison violence, lowering recidivism and guiding inmates through healing that allows for meaningful lives after release. He's the executive producer on the documentary, The Work, detailing Inside Circle's program in Folsom Prison. I um, saw that documentary, as recommended by the great film, uh, excuse me, theatre director Ian Rickson. It's, oh my God, you've got to watch the work. You've got to watch it. It's a powerful, powerful documentary. Me and James refer to it a lot in this conversation. He's got powerful energy, this dude. He's a highly educated man with degrees all over the place. And he knows the score on Jungian psychology and 12-step recovery and a lot of things it's a very interesting conversation and i think that he's talking about ways of setting up ceremonial space for us to deal with the deep truths about who we are move from unconsciousness to consciousness move out of the sort of unaware habitualized behaviors that condemn us to a life of you know bland consumerism out of that into the kind of fire of our um potential awakened existence anyway so I get bogged down oh sorry darling well not nearly knocks cat off my leg there come back in new cat hey get on mate you're right never mind all that for now so um hey listen if you're not subscribing to all my stuff subscribe to all my stuff if you're not following me on all my platforms follow me on all my platforms did you enjoy duncan trussell i like so after that i watched the last episode of midnight um gospel on netflix it's amazing that he's, he's having a conversation with his mother three weeks before she um, died. It's a beautiful conversation and like it's animated. You should check out Midnight Gospel if you've not watched it yet. And if you ain't listened to the Duncan Trussell podcast, uh, do that. So Duncan Trussell, who's basically me with a T in front of his name, double S, double L. Make this a regular podcast, Trussell and Russell. Even this person's misspelt my name. I mean, what's going on here? Republic of Heaven. The two most influential people in my life finally together. Thank Krishna. Julia Reinhardt. I've been waiting for you two to get together for a long time. Yeah, I really liked him. I really like him. I've sent him messages since. Wow, I can't believe they had a convo. convo. I bet portals are opening all around them. Certainly one was opening beneath me. So, <laughs> no, Jenny don't like that joke. That, joke's, that joke is cancelled. Also, on Monday, we're going to do a wide-release Conan O'Brien episode with the great Conan O'Brien, talk show host, writer, comic... Um, well, are we going to use the word genius to describe Conan? Yeah. Shall we? Jenny's nodding. Conan episode, it's on my podcast, it's on his podcast. It's good. It's really it's really funny and strange. It's, just, like, it's good to talk to comedians. I really enjoyed talking with Ricky and Duncan, and this one with Conan's really good. We need to get some more women on, don't we, Jen? Sounds, I just did a list of names there. It's a bit sexist. I don't book the guests. I only interview them. No, I don't book them. No, I just do the interviewing. That's all I do. I can't help it if we've got a very sexist team of sexist women running this operation. Yeah? So let's get some women on, for God's sake. Hey, before we get into this with James, like the way we do our podcast at the moment is we do them over Zoom. We also ask people to record themselves on their phone. Now, James McCleary, he didn't record it on his phone, and he's a pretty, he's a badass, this geezer. So he's not someone you're going to keep going, 
have you got your phone recording, mate? Because you get this, well, two, two or three times across the interview, he says he's willing to use physical violence if he feels that it's necessary. <laughs> so who knows? He may be think that telling him to record something on his phone would be. Anyway, what I'm basically saying is that the audio quality may at times be not up to the usual standards. But I ask you to, to persevere with this and tolerate it because the wisdom that is being conveyed is of high calibre and high fidelity indeed. I mean, I think we've been on a run, a really good podcast. You're listening to all these. You're telling your friends to listen to them. You should be. Well, no, you've got other stuff to do. Sorry, you just carry on doing what you're dealing with your family and your life and that. I didn't mean to pressure you. This isn't a James McCleary. And also go check that documentary, The Work. Thanks. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Hey, buddy. Wow. All right, James. How you doing, my brother? Oh, so good, so good to see you. So good to see you in real time, if not in real space. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you for enjoying the film too. I was guided towards it by a very brilliant uh, theatre director in the UK called Ian Rickson. He directed a lot, lot of like, real super significant productions over here, and he was like blown away by it. Another friend of mine who's a, a therapist who's worked for a long time, um, he's himself a former offender, uh, uh, he, he and does a lot of you know counselling and therapy work. He's sort of twenty years plus in recovery from drugs and alcohol. He like he's been really influenced by it, and I now realise, and I'd love to talk to you about this in the interview that like some of the I've attended a few men's retreats mostly built around recovery that have been really heavily influenced by inside circle in your work yeah we we took a lot of that myself and one of the co-founders uh rob alby you know the guy that looked like zz top with the beard um he spent a lot of time in africa i spent a lot of time in south america and africa and on the reservation uh for years 25 years plus, and uh, the elders took to me, so they, they brought me into teaching their different cosmologies, uh, because I'm just so interested in how the human being operates. Uh, when I grew up, one of the things that got me was the cruelty that I saw in the neighborhood. I, didn't, I couldn't understand why. I knew the practicality of it, but I just couldn't understand how somebody could get to the point of being so cruel to another human being. Yeah, uh, I, that's. I mean, that's. I can see why you, that you have that instinct from the work you've done. Well, um, if it's okay with you, I won't mind even using some of the conversation we've already had. And, and if you're cool, I'd love to jump straight into it. Go ahead, brother. James, thanks very much for coming on Under the Skin and uh, and um, I, having seen uh, your film directed by your uh, son, or is it both your sons involved in directing it? Or? All three. All three sons. All right. Well done. Um, your film, the the work. 
uh, I like uh, I really felt like I had to reach out to you because it's one of the most um, I can't recall really seeing anything more profound on film some of the um, moments of emotional connection between men some of the moments of catharsis some of the, uh, the the severity of some of the issues that are tackled and by you know all the more highlighted by it being conducted in an environment by men that have been consigned to a kind of social dumpster i i, I um I'd love to, I'm really grateful to you for coming on and I'd love to talk to you about the origins of Inside Circle and uh, and how that led to the film, the work. Yeah, it, it is an interesting story. There was a, a pretty terrible riot in 1996 um, in Folsom Prison, which is a level four maximum security prison. And, you know, a lot of people, I mean, these are not common knowledge pieces, but Folsom Prison is the kickout prison. In other words, the maximum security prisons, 23 hour a day lockdown, where the most heinous of, of uh, criminals are, are, are housed. And when they get released, that's the prison they go to in California. And if they can survive there, they don't have to go back to Pelican Bay, basically. Um, so there was a pretty bad riot. And one of the, the men who conceived this thing, Patrick Nolan, you know, he was in for life, and he would, he had three books in the hole. He was in the hole for a long time, and it was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, Martin Luther King's autobiography, and Mahatma Gandhi's autobiography. And, you know, when you're in the hole and there's no stimulus for days on end, whatever materials you have in there, you just absorb into your soul, basically. So when he came back, and he, had, he was a guy who had juice on the yard, he was the, the championship boxer um, for, the, for the prison, and he was a, a skinhead neo-Nazi. He just started walking the, the yard and talking to the, the different uh, gang chieftains, the, the shot callers, trying to get them into the chapel, which is, there's two safe zones in prison. It's the visiting room in a chapel where stuff can't jump off. Um, and uh, so he got, finally he got all those people in and, and it's because he also was in contact with Rob Albee, who's a poet also, who's teaching uh, poetry in the class. And so they just began to meet and uh, Pat knew that Rob was doing men's work. And he said, can you bring this kind of men's work into the prison and bring some people off the street, you know, people who can hold their mud in prison. So Rob went around the country looking for people and I actually saw him on a training that I was doing um, in Portland. And I saw Rob sitting at a bench and here's where my biases come out. Uh, I thought he was the, uh, the groundskeeper, right? <laughs> but we talked deeply for about two hours. And then I, I looked at him and said, okay, brother, I got to go start this meeting. And when I came into the, the staff meeting, he was sitting in there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he winked at me and said, I want to talk to you before we leave this weekend. And he posed this concept to me and he said, if I can get in there, will you come with me? Uh, because I know you know how to put together trainings and go deep and 
you have been experienced in the criminal justice system. Uh, can you do, help me do this? And I said, yeah, not thinking it was going to happen. Six months later, he called me and said, we got the green light to go in. And interestingly enough, we had to go into Old Folsom Prison first, which is a lower security, because the warden said, I can't have you coming in here in this place, which is the ultimate uh, insane prison. Do it in the lower security, and if it comes off, you can do it with us here. And that's what happened. We did the training, and we, then we went into the maximum security, and we've been in there ever since. And this was 1999, 2000. How did you go about constructing a method and technique that you had faith could survive in an environment as potentially volatile as that? How, what have you drawn from in creating these methods that can encourage men to access such raw and primal states when, it's, when one would assume that the kind of misalignment of their raw and primal states is what's led them to be in these maximum security institutions in the first place? Ah, good question. Well, you know, I'm a forensic psychology background, right? Um, what, does that mean? what does that mean, forensic psychology? Well, it's just a branch of psychology that deals with anything uh, in the, in the uh, judicial system. So I have a law degree uh, also. So what I used to do was when people were adjudicated unfit for trial, uh, they'd come to a, a prison hospital and I would evaluate them, put a, a, a behavior plan together to get them cognizant because, you know, we have amendments in the Constitution that says you have to participate in your trial, right? And they had mental illness. And I'd, I'd write to the, I'd send reports to the court every 30 days uh, commenting on their, their fitness so they could go back to trial and participate. And also, um, this indigenous knowledge was such that you don't really uh, uh, target the mind. You target the body, right? You target the gut. You target the emotional area. So, you know, we, we, we have this phrase uh, called guts, getting underneath the surface. Wow. It is, it is meant to follow the arc of the hero's journey, but only in a participatory way. And so it's, first it's the call. And so the call means anybody who shows up means they're interested, curious, and willing. And then there is the descent, which is a stripping process. So, you know, in, in the uh, older times, young boy would get snatched out of the hut from the mother uh, by a warrior taken out into the bush with the elders uh, and everything about them that they could say, this is my identity, I'm a good runner, I'm a good, all that's stripped away. <laughs> In modern society, you, you strip away cigarettes, take off your watch, give me your phone, you know, all those things that give you some kind of self-identity in the modern world. We strip it. And then we begin to strip uh, internally. So, you know, who are you? <laughs> That's the basic question. Who are you and why are you here? And when people start providing shield kinds of uh, uh, answers to shield them against the part of them that they don't want to show to other people, that's what we go after, basically, is 
okay, I heard you say this. I see your body doing this. Tell me about it, right? And very quickly, <laughs> very quickly, within 20 minutes to uh, 35 minutes or so, people are stripped entirely. They go back to their seminal wound uh, that, that they got hurt so badly that they develop the strategies of behavior and thinking so, and feeling so they never get hurt again, you know, by that. But, you know, when you put together a strategy at four, five, six years old, it doesn't work at 40 years old, right? Uh, it comes more sophisticated, but it also becomes more corrupt, right? So we strip all that cover story away, and then they're just left with the emotional um, charge that they felt at the original assault. We unpack that and then we let them go through a hero's journey where they face the thing that they couldn't face at the time uh, uh, because they didn't have defenses. At four, five, six years old, how do you know how to deal with an adult uh, who's coming at you in a certain way, either psychically, physically, emotionally, right? And we just, replay the whole thing. So if somebody says I was thrown off the roof, thrown off the pier by my dad to learn how to swim, and we do that, we simulate that. <laughs> Pick somebody who, who has uh, energy like their dad, and uh, which is uncanny because there's always someone in the room projecting that, right? So that's the basic mechanics of it. And because I've got both sides of my mind working, you know, I draw from principles of uh, clinical stuff, which is ego-centric, coaching, which is behavioral-centric, facilitation, which is relationship-centric, and then wisdom-keeping, which is uh, soul-centric. You just combine them all. That's amazing. So, like, you're confident then that you, uh, well, obviously you are, I mean, but how do you locate these seminal wounds in people that in my, according to my biases, would not have the kind of uh, emotional articulation to know that that's what's happening? How do you get from, you know, get? how do you get past these shields? How can you reliably get past these shields? And how how significant is the sort of participation of the subject? Like, you know, do some people just not, uh, you know, experience that catharsis? Well, uh, the first thing is to create uh, a, a container of safety. And that's done through ritual, right? So, you know, you, you, you heard uh, the chanting, you know, all this chanting and singing and stuff I've learned over the years from, you know, my elders. And it just reaches down into soul and puts everybody on a vibrational same page, if you will. And also, it has to have a great power. Sorry to interrupt you. Uh, it must have a great power if you're dealing with, even though you're dealing with, you know, incarcerated men or and the men have been invited in. There's quite a lot of one might say racial identity, even sort of ideological extremism. But you're saying that these, um, you know, rituals are so universal, so profound, so deep that they reach past all of this layering of superficial identification. Absolutely. Because even if you're, you know, a, uh, a wasp, white, uh, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant Christian, right? And you're sitting in the surface and the, the priest is singing a homily, right? 
the the if, if the priest has got a good voice and and is in his mission and, and passion, that's going to reach the people out who are listening to it, right? They've already made some kind of implied agreement that we're going to come here and do something, right? And that employment agreement kind of takes away some of the resistance shields, if you will. And that's what happens when we're in there. I mean, as you saw in that group, we had 85 people in that room. Every conceivable uh, race, religion, there was a, a priest in there, there was uh, a, uh, a rabbi, every Aryan brother, Crips, Bloods, Mexican Mafia, Serenios, Nortenios, uh, Lowriders, I mean, you name it, everybody's in there, from rich to poor, from plumber to bricklayer, and everybody has agreed to strip, basically, to be honest. So questions like, why are you here? It really, people fumble for uh, really why do I matter? And what do I have to give in this world? That's, I mean, that's really what they're, they're stretching to answer with. And that's just what I found that most people, uh, why do I matter? Because the world is constructed to let you know you don't matter. It's a hierarchical system. It's, it's brutal financially. It's brutal educationally. It's this weeding out system uh, that's guaranteed to tell people you, you're not good enough are not as good as these people. So everybody wants to matter. And that's why I'm here is speaking towards, we call it medicine. That's your gift or superpower that you have. Why are you here is speaking towards, what is my medicine to give to those in, in need that can heal? So like you have a strong intention to serve and love. And from that, you draw your, as well as, as you've, alluded to having elders and obviously training academic training and like sort of anthropological training and time spent with indigenous people because like sometimes right because we have been so secularized so stripped of meaning so rationalized and materialized even to see you um conduct that incantation and the earnestness and sincerity of that can seem like jarring like to people that are schooled in a kind of cultural nihilism that you know like i was thinking of myself i've been like to, i went to a treatment center for a drug addiction and for, for sex addiction in, in both cases like in, in separate cases um, and both times i felt like i was somewhat able to maintain a carapace maintain a kind of distance of like not fully participating except in an in a one incident actually in the place keystone in philadelphia where i went where they likely borrowing from stuff that you uh augured like got me to like um read out these letters to my stepfather and my dad and my mother and like i lost it and like they couldn't handle it. I was taken like subsequently to a hospital. They tried to get me sectioned. It would like it was like it was it was pretty messy. They couldn't hold that space. Now like sometimes I, that theme of fatherlessness comes up again and again. How did where did you get your? I want to suppose I want to understand James your your uh, own forms of initiation that give you that uh, power to be able to hold that kind of ceremonial space that needs to be so strong. So when you went 
at what point during your stay did you write the letter? Like, I think I was, I think I was maybe four weeks, like I'd been to a treatment center for drugs and alcohol when I was 27 and got three months. Then like a couple of years later, I went for a month to a place for, for sex addiction. Um, and I'd been there, I think it was towards the end and I really wanted to leave. I was like, listen, let me do that exercise. I want, I went out, I went out of this place. So suppose you were met right at the front gate by an elder. And before you got in, they looked at you, they were grounded, and they looked at you and said, hey, Russell, why are you here, brother? <laughs> and, and you tried to come up with some answer, and the elder let you have that and said, I see you. you you're willing to do whatever you need to do to get what you came to get? And you, you'd say yes, right? And then you'd walk through a series of other men that were going to be there and they looked at you. I mean, they really looked at you. Right? You would start to feel like, I believe these people. I don't, I don't know them yet, but there's something of gravitas here that they would take the time to let me see who they are and be bold enough to look inside of who I am. You can trust a strong person. Yeah. That's interesting. It's, it seems like the th much of the therapeutic uh, industry has been sort of medicalized and indeed industrialized. So it's sort of hard to see it as a place where what you're describing in a sense is shamanic, uh, mystical, a lot of things. And obviously you're a doctor and a like, highly educated man. Like, so how do you marry together these sort of somewhat uh, difficult to define uh, uh, shamanic and mystical elements with the medical sort of requirements, particularly when you work in some institution like Folsom or I imagine anywhere really? Well, I actually uh, think it's pretty easy to do. The difference is in modern culture, right, the therapist or the addiction worker or whoever somehow uh, unless you get somebody who's lived the life, and, and I can imagine people who you associated with in these different centers that you went to, people you can relate to the most were the people who did were just like you, and now they're there because they want to support you. Whereas the professionals are, they you can feel the air of superiority. I'm not gonna let you see me, <laughs> but I want to see everything about you right? We, we're different. I mean, we model, I strip in front of people, right? So that they can see what it looks like to strip, how scary it is, how vulnerable it is, but that it's possible. And every exercise from just the beginning of what's your name? And why are you here? Welcome. From that first greeting down through a gauntlet, into a, a, a ceremony allows per, a person to look at me. They don't see me. I mean, those men in there never knew any of my credentials for at least 10 years while I was working in there. They didn't know those things. They just knew that I was this guy who showed up in a certain way. And everybody gets a prison name. And in the first prison, they gave me the, the name 
Beastmaster. In the second prison, they didn't know that I had been given that name in the first prison. They gave me the same name, Beastmaster. And all of my spiritual names, they mean the same thing. Because I have one from the Colas, Lakotas, one from the Zulu, and one from the Quechua people. And they all mean the same thing. <laughs> and so they see your basic nature. And that's all we're trying to do is see your basic nature. And if I strip and be vulnerable and transparent, I can see more clearly into you and you can see more clearly into me. That vulnerability, I'm a, um, I do a lot of 12-step uh, stuff. I belong to men's support groups um, particularly and uh, they're quite structured, ritualized spaces and from that structure and ritual get a lot of safety. Um, how, how, what I'm curious about is that like there, there's a sort of assumed um, e equality and e equanimity. And in, in a situation where you're in a leadership role like that, being willing to be vulnerable, does that, how do you remain grounded? And, and when you say about vulnerability, what, what level of vulnerability, what do you share with those men in your endeavor to be vulnerable? Oh, well, I'll give you an example. So, you know, again, all of the exercises are meant to incrementally take people to a certain place, right? So one of the first uh, processes that we do is uh, betrayal. And so who betrayed you in your life and who did you betray? And the very first time that I did that uh, exercise, I had no idea what I was gonna say. <laughs> I was just sitting in the center of the circle with the shot caller, the Bloods, and Rob Albee. And we were sitting there, and we were looking at each other. And my betrayal um, happened when I got my very first communion in the Catholic Church, no, the second communion. Because I, I was told by the, the priests and the nuns that black people didn't go to heaven. And I was just asking a simple question. I was like, you know, was, how could Jesus be black if he was from the Middle East? Because I'd been looking at National Geographic, you know. And they said, well, Jesus is white. And I said, hmm. I said, well, will there be any colored people? I'm 72, so you, this, this is the language at the time. There'd be any colored people in heaven? And the priest and the nun were standing there, and they did like this. No. <laughs> and then they went, yeah. Yeah, because somebody's got to clean up. And so when I got my first communion, to me, that was like a ticket to get to heaven, right? At least I had a ticket, and then I could earn my way there. The very second time I got a communion, we used to go down south to visit my grandmother every summer. And that was the first time I was going to communion after this ritualized communion in the church. And my brother and I, we went to the wrong church. We went to the white church instead of the black church. And so we're sitting in the back because we knew what time it was. I mean, this is, this is 1954, 55, right? So we go up to get communion. I don't know whether you've ever witnessed it, but the priest has got these ropes on. We could hear the swishing of the rope coming toward us. And he would say, the body of Christ. It's a very... Um, vulnerable position you close your eyes you stick out your tongue right he walked right by my brother and I 
Um, I cannot really tell you what the shock was for that. Uh, I'm essentially being snubbed by God. And then when we finally recovered and opened our eyes and knew we should get back to the back pew, all of the people in church were looking at us like, well, what did you think was going to happen, little, little Piccaninny? <laughs> did you actually think we were going to invite you into our ritual? And I never remembered that until I was sitting in that circle. And the, the pain and the hurt that came up out of that, that I had been stuffing and denying all my life, uh, it was just primal, primal shit. And uh, then by going there, I could realize all the strategies I used to withhold because that's the ultimate vulnerability see me in communion. And when that is disrespected, nobody gets to see me again. And so everything, all my thinking constructs, all my, my relationships, I held back parts that I sensed people would betray. And I carried that throughout my life. And until I got to that place where I could release it, I wasn't aware of what I was doing. Now I am. <laughs> and so I can feel how I'm freezing up and pulling back in my own body when that happens. And so when everybody witnessed everything we did, they're willing to do it too. Yes. Yes. Wow, there's a lot there, James. I mean, firstly, like it, uh, it, it's a story that demonstrates the problem with much orthodoxy that it becomes a kind of pastiche of the sacred rather than the sacred's most basic requirements of a, a kind of a universal love and an absolute acceptance. And I suppose the reason I was so excited by uh, the film, the work, and by uh, inside circle and your participation and contribution to the evolution of these ideas is because I feel that on a well global level the loss of the sacred is what's causing us to well what is the way that we've gone off of what is the path that we've lost why what is the nature of wrong why are things not good for me this is what the problem is we have lost connection with ourselves we have lost connection with the sacred what are given that you much of your um faith and belief in these ideas comes from interaction with indigenous people what do you think we can extrapolate from that and the possible uh, application of these ideas into broader and bigger contexts well i don't know if this is going to translate but and it's my own interpretation uh but there is this uh exquisite sense of neutrality around right and wrong and so the best way for me to explain it is if you had a football field at the 50 yard line uh, is, is nothing's going on. Everything is cool. If you step one toe over that 50-yard line, you're in the zone of medicine. You're in the zone of being selfless. If you take one step on the other side, you're in the zone of being selfish, right? So 
all thoughts, the organization of all behavior is towards how does it benefit men, right? And that's what we call, Jung called it the shadow. We call it shadow, we call it poison, right? And you can be within 10 yards of either of the 50 yard lines and be pretty balanced, right? But if you start going past the 40 yard line on the selfless side, you begin to enable or become a martyr because you're giving too much away, <laughs> right? You're being too selfless. If you step the other way, because within the 10 yard on the selfless, selfish side or the me side, there, there's a primal order to, to survive. So if you kill somebody in self-defense, you know, there is no right and wrong there. That's just what had to be done. But if you're doing it without that, that uh, sacred primal directive, and it's just about getting what you want, you become narcissistic, right? And a bullet. So that's kind of the neutrality of it. And everybody can spot when they, they step over those lines. And if they can, it's because they're so habitualized in it that they become unconscious to it. And that's what this work is about, is getting conscious to where, you're, uh, where you are in that uh, football field of selfless or selfish. And then being more conscious about those two things. Because I'm not a pacifist. I will kick your ass if it's necessary, right? But it has to be necessary can't be for something I'm looking to get and feel and sense. Hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, in a sense, like, I suppose it feels like you're talking about a type of fidelity and a, a type of uh, as if there is a universal frequency, as if there is a way that we can all have recourse to. And sort of almost in intellectual and academic circles at the moment, there's a... A sort of a trend towards sort of post-structuralist, oh, well, there is no oneness, there is no universal, there is no right or wrong, this kind of po like post-modern morass. And, and I think many people that are, um, are like, I'm bang into the Jung and the Joseph Campbell and I need something, I need something that I can... Uh, that makes sense to me, that helps me understand my small self and my large self, and I, I need a connection to the world. But I, I, one of the things that I note is that in academic and intellectual circles, a lot of these ideas are sort of dismissed as, I don't know, arcane, and that elsewhere, people's uh, emotional and primal drives are all predicated on consumerism and various forms of pornography and objectification, the sacred is lost. Do you think that these kind of ideas can be revivified, revitalized, and uh, can change the course uh, of humanity? I definitely do. I mean, I sent uh, Charlie a, a clip of a, a lecture, I do lectures, uh, that I did for Eddie Casey Foundation, which is a huge philanthropic organization dedicated to supporting um, disadvantaged children. And one of their objectives is to reduce or to close all juvenile detention centers in the United States. And I, I work with the, the senior analyst on how to do that 
and we're, we're actually in a couple of facilities in the States. So at that meeting, there was about a thousand people there who were involved in the criminal justice system, judges, DAs, uh, forensic uh, psychologists and psychiatrists, directors of, of prisons, they were all there. And I talked about the four tenets of, of just uh, healing, trauma, which are very simple. But, you know, in a skinny minute, I can port, point to some kind of academic evidence-based uh, cognitive behavioral, you know, uh, uh, rationale for it, right? Uh, and so, I mean, you know, like reality testing, you know, that's, that's a, a, a bonafide way to look at things when you're trying to get people to see things correctly. Is it true, right? But I also throw in uh, the, the people human way, which is the indigenous way, really, of how do you communicate, uh, is it true to an individual? And how, what tone of voice do you need to use and, and how do you need to present yourself so that they're really interested in it versus tell me so I can tell you what's wrong with you. Because one of the things we do not do is give advice, right? We believe everybody knows what, how to heal themselves. And we just close off every exit that people are trying to avoid doing that. That's basically what the work is, you know? We close off that exit. You have to turn around and retrace steps or find another way. And we do it through uh, open-ended, honest questions that we see in your body. Because we call, you know, when the body gives off a signal, we call it a truth response. You know, how many people look at you and, and you know they're angry, they got their fist balled, and you say, hey, are you angry? No, I'm not angry. <laughs> well, they may not really cognitively understand that they are, realize they are angry, but they are angry, right? And when somebody's angry and doesn't know it, that's a dangerous person to me, right? And it's the same thing with, hey, you're going to pick me up at seven, Russell? And you're going, yeah, I'll be there at seven. Uh -huh. Unconsciously, I'm looking at you and going, damn, I don't think he's made a commitment to pick me up at seven. And it's 10 below, and it's cold out there. I don't want to be waiting on the corner with his ambivalence, right? So we just note that. You know, you're saying this. Why are you shaking your head no? Or you say you're not angry? Why is your fist balled up? Right? Help me understand that. You get ready to hit me, right? And so now the person has to address that because it's an honest inquiry. This problem of um, unconsciousness uh, is something that I, I feel like that the 12 step program is a, or a pro perhaps any spiritual technique is about bringing people from a state of unawareness to awareness, a kind of personal awakening what um after you described the early stages you know initially the call which you know the in intention and the attendance the descent the stripping away what 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 follows that james the ordeal so finally people keep going down the the, the rabbit hole of uh, what's threatening their psyche basically what what is it about what's the demon right and we, the, the stripping process, they're processes. What's at risk? That's a cost benefit to every decision and everything you do. Accountability. Do you recognize that anything you do puts into motion 
a, an end, an end result. And you're accountable for that, the impact of that, whether you intended it or not, because you put it into motion. You know, all the step-down processes like that. Finally, they get to uh, the real demon inside of them. I, this is, I can't do this. I'm stupid. Well, who told you you were stupid? And there's enough trust now to do some kind of regression, but conscious aware aggression, where they figure out where they were told they were stupid and the impact it had on them. And when they dismantle that, then they go on the hero's journey of reclaiming their smartness, right? And when they reclaim it, we just honor them in that reclaiming. And their smartness is always a brilliant strategy around navigating them thinking they're dumb, right? So like I, I'm dyslexic and it's difficult for me to understand information. So I was told I was stupid for a long time. That's why I got all those degrees is to prove to myself I wasn't. <laughs> so that's the gift. Now I got all this useless information that becomes <laughs> useful at times, right? <laughs> and so that's how we do it. A series of questions, a series of through trust, uh, emotional catharsis, truth responses. We, I, I see, you know, I, it, it's, it, it's to the point where I can see a person's eyes missed up and then get unmissed. Up. That's sadness. So I go, ah, what was that? And I go, what was what? I said, well, I saw your eyes missed over. Are you sad? And as soon as there's that empathy and they know I'm seeing them at a deep level, they feel open enough to descend. And then they just start crying, <laughs> right? And as they're crying, the more they cry, the more the body is, is uh, letting go of information for the mind to make sense of if you will. Then they can start articulating those things that, you know, that was out of their field of awareness. And when they articulate them, now they can make a choice about it. Well, what do you want? <laughs> well, I want this. Well, how can you get this? And then we take them to a process of getting it, right? So it, it, it's, it is pretty simple. It, it's hard because everybody has to disrobe emotionally and mentally and there's no hiding yes yes so um uh, after what what follows the the ordeal is that the honoring did you say or yes hmm. so they conquer their demon and they have some at, at least through that particular role play they have some strategy to meet that challenge again when it comes up right I mean, if you saw in the film, uh, one of the young men in there from the outside, he had no idea why he just couldn't commit. And this all went back to his father not letting him come out in the garage and helping, helping him. The white guy with long hair, him. Yeah. Go back in yeah. the house with your mother. Yeah. And so now he has a conscious way of going, shit, my stomach is getting tight. So I know this particular shit is coming up again for me. And, I, and I'm watching my story now. 
I can't commit, I can't commit. Uh, who says I can't commit? I committed when I did that piece, you know, last week in, in, in jail, right? I can commit. <laughs> uh, how did I commit then? Well, I just, I did this. And so they can reenact something that they've done already. Over and over again. I mean, I can't tell you how much work I, I, I've done and still have to do. It's, it's, it's amazing. But every time some insight, beautiful insight about myself surfaces, that kind of negates you're stupid and you can't get to heaven because you're black. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty heavy wounds to walk around with. Um, I've got a few questions here, James. One is, um, one is, why did was the decision made to bring men from the outside into the Folsom environment? What's the thinking behind that? And also, how do you feel um, that? How do you have enough trust to empower men to? be as engaged as they are like there's other than there's one bit in the film where someone goes one voice one voice it might have been you that said it actually i can't remember like like there's a lot of people are like you know like some of the guys that have maybe done the course before but are themselves still in prison are totally taking authority particularly that moment around suicide where your man who's subsequently been released like I thought, like, man, that's some bold moves that, that that are getting made in there. Like, like that's their confidence. And how do you uh, empower people and trust people enough to do that? Let alone, you know, the risks of physical violence and stuff like that. I can see that that's not something that's like seem don't seem particularly to be on your radar. But like the emotional and indeed physical risks. How do you feel confident empowering people? How do you have that much trust? A couple of things. It was Pat Nolan the uh, convict who wanted this to happen, he said, I want people from the, from the streets to come in here because there is this misinformation about who we are inside here, all right? And the public needs to, to know that we're human beings. And matter of fact, that was how the film got made. Um, my sons uh, were in the film business and they urged them to make a documentary showing this. That's how it came out. They said, you gotta do this to show the world who we really are. Um, but confidence to me, I, my definition of confidence is the same as congruence. When a guy's thinking something and the emotion is in alignment with that thinking, they're not telling me uh, that they're, they're not angry and holding their fists. So if the body is aligned with what they're thinking, and the emotion is all aligned, I trust the, that person in front of me, right? I mistrust mixed signals, right? So confidence, is, of course, we don't let everybody in. I mean, there's a vet, I vet everybody who goes in there. Rob and I, we vet. And so well, some people just want to come in and look at prison like it's a zoo. It's a field trip, right? <laughs> and we, those people, they're not ready to come in. We only want people to come in who can share their heart and who they are. And it doesn't matter who they are, right? You don't have to be no bad dude to come in there. You just have to be you. And if you're you, you're a bad dude. And that's how they, they kind of categorize who it is. So if that person is aligned, and of course we are always doing exercises 
So everybody keeps in that, that same transparency and vulnerability alignment. So anybody can say something to anybody if they pick it up, right? So that's where yeah. the confidence comes from. Yeah. You show me who you are. I'm going to trust that you're going to be really mindful about how you show up. And when you're not, and I call your attention to it, you'll get it immediately. There won't be resistance in fighting it. When I'm involved in men's groups, sometimes my, I guess, my own sense of, like if I'm in a, a leadership role, for example, uh, like my, I would allow sometimes I feel my own inferiority and inadequacy makes me want to be a little controlling and not like let everyone have a you know because also my background is in entertainment and I sort of sometimes feel like I have to be the sort of centrifugal force around which all this is organized like how did you how do you get to the like how did you do how do you deal with that your own sort of like you said that you still deal with your own vulnerabilities how do you from that perspective, let go and empower the group? Well, because um, everybody is watching everybody else's back, so to speak. And so if they see me do something, we'll have a conversation on the side. <laughs> or if I see somebody do something, I'll have a conversation on the side. And it's always, up, uh, it's always this in this vein. My experience of what I just witnessed is this. It's not, you did this, not good. I don't, that's, I don't, it's not that. It is so open-ended that there's the invitation for someone to, to go, hmm, yeah, I feel you. I hear you. I'm going to watch that. You know where that came from? I got triggered, right? So we're so used to constant check and battle, uh, check and, and balance throughout the whole time because it is dangerous in there. And to your second piece is it's always dangerous in there. There have been a couple of times where we've had to negotiate people not being killed because there was an, an, an infraction which is so highly ingrained in their culture that it must be taken care of in this way <laughs> <laughs> that there's a knee jerk back into that. And, you know, it's like for whatever reason, I'm, I don't consider myself a leader. They don't consider uh, myself a leader. Uh, but all through my life, people see me as a go-to guy and there's a couple other guys like that so when it's a go-to place for whatever reason my spirit has been able to just go limp if you will and not try to do anything until spirit comes in and, and tells and allows for what needs to be done and that happens all the time uh Somebody, one time somebody was going to get killed and it was, it was such a complete fracture between the men and the outside and the men and the inside that we just didn't know what was going to happen. We knew somebody was going to get hurt, right? And it was even said, you're a dead man. I can get to you anywhere, <laughs> okay? And so we had to stand in the middle and somehow we have a process for, we call it clearing. 
And basically it's a four step process where people get to release the charge, hear the judgment, hear the emotion, and hear what the person wants. And the fifth step, after they do all that, and the person has heard them, the fifth step is we ask the person, now where do you do that in your life? So it kind of completely turns around this one-sided, I gotta get you because you hurt me, to I do that same shit, so who am I to talk, right? So that's how we do it. I hope that answers kind of the questions you had. Do you, forgive my ignorance, can you get, can I get trained in this? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. There's, there's lots of things you can do. We can, we can just stay, you know, in some kind of regular uh, uh, contact and go through, you know, a trajectory. Uh, when the prison opens up again, you're certainly welcome to come in. Uh, I feel you. Uh, I know you would be an asset and, and um, to the men inside. So I, w- I would have you come in. Thank you. Um, that moment where, uh, do you remember he said, oh, is that why you wear those sacred bits where a, a man was opening up who I figured was like a facilitator, like in some way. Um, it was Baratji, yeah. Well, he got like, like that uh, guy that was from the street, from the, you know one of the external men, he was a little bit confrontational when he looked like someone who was at some point going to have an explosion. So good filmmaking there by your, by your sons. Um, but like, um, I, that, that was pretty raw, that moment. It was a, uh, uh, is that what you mean by the willingness of the facilitators to be open? Because when, can you explain that moment a little bit for our listeners who have not yet watched the film The Worker, though I'm sure they all will after this. Yeah, this this guy, um, uh, Brian, I mean, he's totally up in his head, narcissistic, bona fide, right? And so he's judging everything. And he's telling people he's judging everything. He, he did in the first first checkout, right? And so when he, 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 he needed to have a sense that he was, he was a good enough observer too. I can see things and I can point uh, shit out, right? <laughs> and, and so he comes at Baradaji, who has a deep spiritual practice. Baradaji right? <laughs> got triggered, as you saw. <laughs> you know, he says, yeah, bitch. <laughs> and, but you see how Baradaji de-escalated and explained to him how he came out of this, what, why and how he came out of this disrespectful place, and that's not how he wants to show up, right? So that's kind of what happens. I mean, it, it's training, it's repetition, mostly if you're doing your work, you're gonna pick up these things. If you notice, I barely did any uh, facilitation on camera at all. I mean, I was in those other circles doing work, but the the whole idea was to show that uh, this was shot in 2009, and we've been in there since 2000. Oh wow! Oh, wow. Myself and a couple other men, we you know we've been dropping these training techniques and whatever over a nine year period of time, and there's some smart people in there. 
Matter of fact, uh, five of the, the men who were in that you saw in the film, uh, Vegas, Manny, um, Rick, remember Rick, the Aryan Nation guy? Yeah. Um, yeah. They're all out. And we turned the organization over to them. So they run the organization. I'm an elder advisor. <laughs> That's fantastic. We, we do outside circles too. And so you're welcome to come to one of those too. But the thing is, uh, you know, men um, like them and my own background, we, we can be hard men. And so there's a gravitas about how we show up because, you know, I'm a affable kind of guy. Um, but don't, don't cross me, <laughs> right? That, that's, an, that's a spiritual insult that can only be met. If, if I have to smack you in order to get your attention, that's what's going to happen, right? But that's not my first choice. But people see that in these men. So, you know, the normal bullshit that they might drop on somebody else, they do not drop with these men. <laughs> How do you differentiate between this kind of masculinity that is quite beautiful and about honor and the kind of contemporary narratives around toxic masculinity that seem to be sort of quite castrating and damning of maleness it's particularly when we're talking about cultural environment that um is dealing with a lot of fatherless men that don't have good access to good male role modeling how do you draw this distinction between a willingness to assert in matters of honor uh, how do you teach that how do you describe it and how do you recognize it well, there is a whole lot to that. And um, so we look at the, the, the archetypes, kind of the four main archetypes, uh, king, queen, warrior, lover, magician. And each of those archetypes have this uh, energy to uh, teach and guide. And the warrior's energy is about holding boundaries. Simple as that. Right. And so anytime there's an emotional crossing of boundary or a physical crossing of boundary or a psychic crossing of boundary, the warrior has been trained either to prevent that or to take action once that's happened. Right. And so uh, that is honor when who the basic nature of what the, the masculine is, is given the honor of acting in a way it should be acting, <laughs> then that's total congruency and total honor, if you will. And, you know, I mean, it, it keeps, it, 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 it's nuanced because each of the four kind of main emotions are portals into each of those archetypes. So anger is the gateway emotion into the warrior. <laughs> and fear is the gateway emotion into the magician. And compassion and love is a gateway into the uh, 
the, the lover. And uh, joy is the gateway emotion into the, the sovereign, right? Because, and that's either in shadow or medicine. Because when you're in joy and you're, you're giving, you're in medicine. When you're in joy, when you're in full joy and you're not giving, you're narcissistic, <laughs> right? You're arrogant, mm -hmm. right? So it's very simple to, to kind of see what emotion someone's in, the archetype, and then the subsequent behavior that's going to follow. And so uh, people see that uh, a, a man with gravitas or a woman with gravitas is holding a warrior boundary around what's really acceptable here. And we <laughs> all know what's really acceptable, right? <laughs> there's no nuances. That's what we're going to do. And if you don't do it, you know, there's a smack coming. I have a series to interrupt. I have a question around this because when you described like the emotional portals to those archetypes and talk some what are the archetypes themselves, I've I feel like I get strong identification with like magician or shaman energy, uh, but as such, I experience a lot of fear. In my early life, I've um, my attitude towards authority really before coming in recovery. I've been in recovery seventeen years. Was always do not trust authority. Authority is there to harm you, to control you. Do not trust, do not trust. So now as I have become, I'm a father. I've got two young daughters. Now I have to become that authority. I have this kind of sensitivity around fear and and how it manifests, James, is a tendency to sort of overact, to overassert within the, like in that warrior if, if anger energy and it don't come from a grounded place I feel like I need grounding there I need to get earthed somehow I wonder what uh, insight you have if there's fear you know the, the medicine is that is curiosity right alchemy putting shit together to come up with something uh, more valuable if it is in shadow then you're trying to con somebody or manipulate them towards your own end. Now, so when you go into fear and uh, you, you don't relax into, well, I can figure out how to address this with my sons in the way that they're going to get it. And I'm going to bring some warrior into it so that they get them serious and hold the boundary. That would be a grounded way to look at it, right? But instead, when there's no balance, you're going to tip, it's going to tip and use more energy in, in each, each of those uh, archetypes than you need to have. It's a shotgun uh, when all you need is a fly swatter, right? From my own limited experience of uh, incarcerated men, uh, I, I've noticed that there was more fear in the mix than I would have anticipated before I had that experience. Did that thing I've described there about the not being grounded, do, is, this a, is this common, do you think? It, with men coming in or the men who are incarcerated? Well, like, both. Well, of course, uh, the men who are already incarcerated I mean, that's Folsom Prison is the, the most dangerous prison in the United States. There's more violent uh, eruptions in there than any place on the, any other prison. 
right? And so, and the politics is is very sophisticated and very entrenched, right? And so they're not being violent and aggressive because they're out of fucking control. <laughs> it's almost like the in, in Japan, the spaces are so small. There has to be a high degree of respect for people's spaces, right? And when there's an infraction, everybody knows that. So if you invade into somebody's space, it's deliberate, right? And that has to be swiftly and quickly and definitively taken care of. The other thing is, I mean, it's a, it's a community, it's a society. So there's a consumer operation in there beyond belief, right? Everything is bought and sold and, and bartered, and, right? And different sects control different markets. And so part of that is the key control, the violence and aggression is the key control of that. And that's why we do it in the chapel, because those are two zones which are firmly in everybody's psyche. This is a neutral zone. Be no shit here. So one of our agreements is there is no, there is no politics inside there, and there, there's no aggression and violence, even though it can go there, so you have to main, you have to have to have some process and trust in place to interrupt it. It's not that we believe it ain't never going to happen. We just believe in spirit uh, coming and, and allowing us to have the process that's going to stop it. With your thank, thank you. With your experience um, with uh, indigenous people in South America, uh, how, why is it? Do you think that uh, the, what the the practices they have are so uh, relevant to modern people? Does that, what does that tell us about the way that we have been civilized, and what does it tell us about perhaps ideas around uh, I don't know the universal and reliable rules or reliable parameters? Yeah, you know. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to answer this, but just from my own uh, thinking and, and my observation and experiences, the communities are smaller. And so when communities are smaller, uh, everybody has to cooperate for the, for the well-being of the total community, right? If somebody is not hunting to their best self, there'll be no, no game to, for, to eat. It's simple as that. And uh, there has to be a clarity around people's boundaries. When resources are dependent on what we bring in. And so they've just, there's just a higher sense of respect, a, a lower sensitivity uh, to, um, or a lower conditioning because the consumerism doesn't exist there. Right, they don't have to have shit. Right, the younger people who leave and go to the some of the out out towns, they come back with radios and iPods and and stuff like that. It's just not a coveting of those things, and so there's a simplicity of honesty that that happens. I call it the me you it. 
uh, me is if I'm empathic, right? I'm going to be in a place of appreciative inquiry, right? If I am authentic, I'm going to be in a place where I'm congruent. You see just where I'm coming from, happy, mad, sad, or whatever. And then if we both are in that place, which they are, they come to a shared it. And their shared it is pretty simplistic. Wow. Wow. I, I found this wherever I went. Uh, a lot of the same mythologies are the same. I was in, in Africa with Kreda uh, uh, Mutua one time, and uh, a Commander Williams, who was the, the chief of the chiefs in Canada, came, he was at a world peace in Durban, world peace conference, and he hunted up Kreda because Credo, Credo, he just died. He was a Renaissance person in, in uh, South Africa, Credo Mutua. And he had written the story of uh, community and a peace belt, a beads. They had the same story and the same beadwork. The, and, and the Lakotas, when I go on the reservation, some of the same principles, and they're, they're pretty simple, same principles are there, right? where the ancestors reside, like in the Milky Way. And how did they come to you? Some, uh, a lot of times they come to you in orbs of light, right? Same ship. I, it was just so universal, but pretty simple, not complicated. And a lot of what I've been saying, that's, I'm, I'm phrasing it and, and articulating it in a way that, you know, we speak in our Western culture, uh, through the construct of, of dialogue. But the idea is this is where, where they're coming from, like shadow and, and medicine and, and boundaries and archetypes. And that stuff is all about some, the simplicity of spirit and how it manifests in a practical way. That's, that's my one of my particular gifts is articulating the un unknowable and so making the uh, abstract into practicality yeah that's an amazing gift you have yeah thank you for explaining that um james i'd love to um to talk to you again and if possible and follow up on the idea of uh, getting uh, at least a rudimentary education in in uh, your methods and techniques and also um yeah when people are freely traveling i'd yeah, love to physically meet and you know follow up on that prison offer and and outside you know either brilliant for me thank you for explaining all of that to me so articulately thank you for the incredible work you're doing with uh, with vulnerable or neglected people and thanks for showing me uh, and articulating so beautifully that these truths in a time where people are so sort of confused in a time where so much seems opaque making things seem clear and standard it's really really uh, nourishing thank you thank you russell appreciate it my brother and i mean it when i say stay in touch I will do. I'm going to send you an email today. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I'm nodding my head while I say that. I'm going to send you an email today. I'll pick you up at seven. <laughs> seven. I'll see you at seven. <laughs> Thank you, mate. 
Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Dr. James McCleary from Luminary. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. I'm at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets Under the Skin. Look at me wherever the hell you choose. Go get on the mailing list. I'm going to send some stuff out. Why don't we do a Zoom call for the people? If you're on the mailing list, guess what I'm going to do? A Zoom call where I perform to everyone, like where I do a Q&A. Yes, why not? I do a Q&A, a Zoom Q&A. Zoom Q&A, that's what I'll do. Anyway, in the meantime, why don't you listen to some of these men on our sexist podcast, Wim Hof, Bruce Parry or Ed Stafford. All men. A group of men. Survival men. Male, male, hairy men. Actually, they're good. I'd like to have Ed Stafford on again, actually, because uh, I see Ben Fogel the other day when I was out and about. I was getting amongst it in COVID. I was on a walk with my children, actually, and saw Ben Fogel. I thought, he's lean. He's a nice, lean man. Anyway, I was trespassing. But like, the fact is is that he knows Ed Stafford. Let's get Ed Stafford back on. And uh, keep checking the YouTube channel daily. And I love you. And this is Under the Skin from Luminary. And goodbye. <laughs>